0: listening to The Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic, a series of online conversations with experts hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and emerging technologies. As we watch the global pandemic unfold, this series will look at what impacts the coronavirus will have on human rights, geopolitics, and democracy, and what role technology and disinformation will play. Hello, this is Kyle Matthews, Executive Director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. I'm uh, very pleased today to welcome uh, Sheldon Fernandez of Darwin AI to our, uh, our talk on the coronavirus, seeing what's happening around the world in the way of human rights. Yeah. And today we're, we're very lucky. Um, Sheldon has been a friend of MIGS for a while. He took our training program. I don't know how many years ago that was, Sheldon. 2014, um, six years ago. 2014 and then you joined us a few years later we did a a workshop in montreal with tech looking at ai and with extremism online so so yeah so it's it's great to connect with you and and so Sheldon, maybe i'd like to get your perspective you um you you've been doing a lot of interesting work in the ai front um head of a company but also interested in in social issues and political issues um you gave a talk uh recently about the weaponization of media and the ties of disinformation and place AI can play in this. So maybe I just offer you to start off with, tell us a bit about your thoughts on this and, and, um, and we'll take it. First.
1: It's a fascinating topic. Um, and, and the best way to frame it um, is I read an article recently that says when the government wants to control a narrative and rogue governments in particular, they can either really restrict access to information and push their agenda in a very narrow fashion, right? So, I mean, North Korea would be the prototypical example of that. But the other tack that they're taking now with social media is when they don't want to obviously do that because of the, you know, cosmetics behind it, they will instead flood the system with so much misinformation that it is difficult for the ordinary citizen to tell what's real and what's fake, right? And yeah. you see this literally around the world. Um, and so the question is, given the raw amount of data that's being pushed by... rogue actors and state actors, can we use artificial intelligence as a tool to try to at least combat some of this quote-unquote misinformation? And that's where my talk kind of centered on at the University of Waterloo, uh, because our chief scientist, Professor Alexander Wong, who's also Canada's research chair in AI, on the academic side, they've done some groundbreaking work to use artificial intelligence to detect fake news and you know, combining the two is just a natural interest for me.
0: So, so it's interesting, because when we think about using AI to deal with fake news, we tend to think about um, large companies like Facebook or Twitter or YouTube that have algorithms um, that detect kind of hate or, uh, or inauthentic um, information campaigns that are push- uh, pushing um, false narratives or conspiracy theories. Um, so we tend to think that it's all the responsibility of these large firms, but what you're saying is that actually, smaller companies can play a role or, or could play a role perhaps in engaging with ngos or think tanks or or, or thought leaders
1: i absolutely think that and i think this also comes from the research community as well right the thing to remember with these large tech companies is they usually have good intentions but it comes from a certain perspective of you know maximizing shareholder value right um, a good example of this is the youtube recommendation system um, so somebody did a study when of how youtube's recommendation system works and what they found is that it slowly starts surfacing more extreme versions of the content you're already interested in. And so like, yeah, I can give a very kind of strangely humorous example. So I think four months ago, I got into the strange place where I was watching videos of cops arresting other cops. It was just fascinating to me, right? Because yeah. psychology is I have a cousin who's a cop and if you pull over another cop, he flashes the badge, you just let it go and it's the unsung, you know, code between them. So I found it really fascinating to watch those strange videos, there's rare exceptions when they wouldn't follow that protocol. And what I found was slowly but surely, the content got more extreme. At first it was arrests, then it was gunfights and so forth. And so if you ask yourself, what is Google in this case trying to do with with this AI? They're trying to keep you on the screen as long as possible, right? So that they can maximize the amount of advertising you're exposed to. And so yes, big tech can play a role in this, but you need neutral actors smaller companies, research institutions working in concert with organizations such as yours to provide what I would say is a non-commercial perspective, right? That's not tainted by the pressures that a very large company would have.
0: No, that's interesting because I, I have the same, you know, I do work on extremist groups and I've started to see, you know, because I research like ISIS or, or, or groups in West Africa that are committing atrocities and I start to get more intense uh suggestions by right. different platforms including yeah. trying to push far right stuff at me because i guess you know they think that i'm looking at this and i getting radicalized so it, it really yeah. is um it, yeah this is i guess a systemic issue that needs really more minds to come together to think about this yeah i'd like i'd like to think more though about right now we're, we're dealing with this coronavirus so so um you know global pandemic you and i our lives are being upended we're forced to work from home Yeah, young children. It's very hard to do that. Oh Um, yeah, my son's going to barge in any moment. I'm probably. It'll be like a BBC. uh, It'll be like a BBC moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, But you know, this is a case where misinformation or disinformation being pushed by different actors can actually be deadly. Um, Yes. Yes. I I spoke to um, Marcus Kolga, an expert on disinformation, particularly from Russia, and and he was basically saying that, as you mentioned, there is so much information being out there, conspiracy theories, but also fake information on, on what will protect you from the coronavirus. And and I'm wondering, you know, how, we can detect fake messages, or, but how do we detect like videos or audio recordings that are being sent to people via, via different platforms? To me, that seems like an enormous uh, challenge. And I'm not sure how we can go about to do that with AI.
1: It's a real challenge. Um, so there, there's two parts. So a lot of the work right now with kind of textual information, so an article you might read, the first level of this has to do with something called stance detection, which our our group at Waterloo did some groundbreaking work on. And the idea is given a claim in English and then given a body of text in an article, can we use AI to figure out if the text of that article supports that claim, rejects that claim or is neutral, or is, uh, I think the other one is not, not admissible or not, not relevant. And so why is that appropriate? So let's, let's take something that's obviously false. Let's say we say that um, children cannot uh, contract corona but, uh, as the claim. Mm-hmm. What I could do then is I could take that claim, I could source that with AI and check it across a thousand new news articles from across the political spectrum, right? So Wall Street Journal, Montreal Gazette, Toronto Star, Globe and Mail. And from that volume of data, a consensus should emer- emerge if it's obviously false. And so the idea is this is a tool would allow a regular this in when they're reading something to just see like is there is there agreement with the five thousand articles that have been published on this and if there's three percent agreement well then you probably know it's fake mm. if there's ninety seven percent agreement okay I can be pretty certain what I'm reading is true so we the thing with AI is we can we can combat um, data with with AI which is really good at analyzing data now your question about video and audio that's that's the next challenge right so there's these deep fake videos now which are getting increasingly uh, sophisticated right yeah. so we can take a video of you and create a video that looks like how Matthew's saying that children cannot get corona. And so there are researchers who are trying to detect deep fakes using artificial intelligence. And it's a tit for tat between those who want to be nefarious and those who want to solve the problem. But at least we're trying, right? And Facebook has... Dedicated millions of dollars towards this, as have Google. So it's it's the start of something, but it's a challenge for sure.
0: No, I, but I, I think it, I think the issue of deep fakes are, are to me I, I see that as something that um, we have to be really careful about because because I, I get concerned that if you could easily you know use some AI tools to create fake videos and make a political leader say something that no no um, you know everyone if you if you drink tomato juice in the morning you're going to be okay yeah. everyone to go outside and and it yeah. can be a form of kind of asymmetrical warfare against yeah. society or a country so yeah. that's it's yeah. really key and and you know yeah. i know also there's lots of online uh you know you can do voice alterations now and liar bird there there's all sorts of platforms that one can go to to kind of manipulate data and information to to kind of create a a series of one doesn't know what's real or not i mean this is really
1: and so and so there's you know there's various solutions that people are proposing right which is you would all let's say you record a video you would imprint that with a digital signature the way you would you know your your bank transaction and that digital signature would let me know that it's authentically coming from you versus being doctored. You know, there's blockchain, which you know, people are trying to apply in creative ways to maintain the fidelity of something. So there are technical tools to combat this. I think only now are we realizing the scale of the problem, mm-hmm. which is why a lot of researchers and nonprofit organizations are trying to spend time to address, you know, what is clearly a, a challenge.
0: No, and I think this is true. I mean, you know, our work, we started off looking at mass atrocities and, and yeah. classic human rights cases, but with the emergence of digital tech and authoritarian governments that are using this on open societies that we've decided like we have to kind of start looking at some of these new issues because they're not going and yeah. they have a potential to have an ex- extremely negative impact on human rights. Um, yeah. Freedom of, age, yeah. Uh, freedom of information. I mean, it's, it's really um, a strange time that, that we're living in.
1: And the tricky part about it is that it's not as obviously nefarious as the things that I, we 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 studied in 2014, right? Yeah. Where there's you know clear examples of human atrocities and so forth that are physical that you can measure, or you can see a government narrative, for example, in Burma uh, that was clearly you know documented and so forth. This is a little more subtle, right? You you have you have a flooding of information and hyper nudging in these terms that don't outright lie, but they draw people towards more extreme content so as to galvanize them or radicalize them, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, detecting those is 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 the challenge. And it's something that your organization is 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 certainly doing well to to start paying attention to.
0: I find it interesting you 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 mentioned in your in your presentation, you, you mentioned the case of Rwanda that yeah the traditional media, the radio was really the one tool used to kind of incite hatred and to inculcate among the masses over a long period of time kind of anger yeah. and, and resentment and racism towards one of the minorities in that country. Yeah. What I find interesting now in 2020 is that you don't need to be a, a state to control the media. You can do that from a smartphone. It, yeah. it really has given a lot of power to non-state actors that can do this or individuals. And to me, that that makes it even more of a challenge because you don't know who's behind some of these campaigns. You're not yeah. sure. And it also, yeah. it, it, it doesn't cost that much anymore to, to, in order to spread yeah. this, this hate. So we are, I think we really need to get creative in, in getting private sector, government and, and others to work together on this.
1: And so I think, I think that the point you bring up about Rwanda is interesting because I remember reading, and I think it was in the materials that, that you guys provided for, for the course that I attended. The challenge with Rwanda was that the radio was, you know, in one direction. People yeah. could not respond to the broadcast. And so there were many Tutsis and moderate Hutus that could do nothing but wait for death, essentially. Um, And then we had Kenya, and I often use this as an example, the Kenyan election of 2008, even 2012. When you had the violence in Kenya after the election, it was on text, it was on social media. It allowed voices of moderation to counter the radicalization uh, elements that we were seeing. And the same thing applies to the open platform. So yes, yeah, somebody on Twitter can say something, somebody can say something on a tweet, and then in the comments you can have 15 rebuttals in a matter of minutes. The openness of the platform is a challenge, I grant you that. It's also possibly the way that we can try to offset some of these very concentrated, you know, voices that can be problematic.
0: No, it's interesting you bring up Kenya, because I, I I know after the electoral violence in 2007, 2008, after that, the, the Kenyan government Realize there was a problem. They set up um, a bunch of human, you know, content moderators around yeah. the election to, to look yeah. at, you know, incitement to violence and so forth. So that was human moderation. Now these platforms do have these tools, but also there's a lot of, um, and we saw from Myanmar, you can create AI to look at certain languages, but we still haven't made a lot of progress of looking at, you know, other languages, um, you know, yeah. smaller languages around the world, uh, be it um, yeah. Swahili or, or others. So, as some of these tech companies are are focused in the West, um, we haven't caught up or I guess, created some of the AI tools that would be able to look at these different dialects and and languages that aren't prevalent on the platforms, but are are there. Yeah,
1: Yeah. I remember Susan Benich, uh, you know, did this, did a project, I think it was in Kenya in 2012, and differentiated between hate speech and dangerous speech, right? Dangerous speech being you know, a little more subsection of it that was more galvanizing. And the challenge she found, if, I, if I'm correct, was the indigenous language. There was so much nuance and so many dialects within the country, it was difficult to really translate what people were saying. And the other thing is humans that want to propagate this are smart. So yeah. they then start using satirical speech and elliptical speech and these roundabout ways of talking that are difficult for an AI to pick up, but get the point across. Yeah. Um, now that said, you know the AI is becoming geometrically more powerful by the month. So you hope that we will start to have these tools that will will start to address this. But it's an ongoing back and forth, right, between the actor who wants to be nefarious and the you know engineer or and, and consortium of people that want to prevent them from being nefarious.
0: I have um, a question to pose to you as because you work in the private sector, you lead a company. Um, you talked about sometimes the challenge between commercial interest or economic interest, but then also the challenge of corporate social responsibility of doing good. Do a lot of people that you work with in, in, in AI companies, do they think about these issues? Is it is it becoming more and more something that they realize, hey, like yes, we're we're developing products to, to help commercial purposes or or increase health, but is there a, a growing concern that, hey, disinformation, um, manipulation, online hate, is that something that people are talking about more and more? Or are you one of the few um, uh, yeah. tech leaders th- that are thinking about this? Right. I,
1: no, I think people are talking about it uh, more from the perspective of ethics, right? Okay. So when you build these systems, what is the ethical framework that you have in place to decide what they do and how they do it? So that there's a real awareness around that that comes from, I think, a citizen, citizen average citizen demanding now. An awareness around the ethics of their data and so forth that probably wasn't there before, right? The Cambridge Analytica fiasco was, you know, principal in that kind of awareness. So you see it from a different angle. I wouldn't say a lot of people in my industry are aware of the problem of radicalization and the weaponization of information. Some are as a peripheral kind of um, concern, but it's really the perspective of what ethics do we bring into the designs of our system. Now, some of that is branding, right? Some of that is you want to be seen. As the responsible corporate citizen, so you make some nominal ethics appointment and so forth. But a lot of it, you know, is serious. Um, there's a group called Partnership in AI, PAI, PA that's based in San Francisco. Our chief scientist sits on the committee, and there's large companies there—Microsoft, Google, Apple. There's smaller companies like ours. There's research institutions that are genuinely getting together and are saying, "Okay, like, how do we come up with a fair standard for what the ethic, ethical expectations are between these behind these systems?" Um, should there be an audit? I mean, you know, so so the work is starting, and I think most of it is uh, rooted in in the, in the you know motivation to do good.
0: Sheldon, when when you when you mention uh, audits, so you're talking about what public audits of of algorithms? Is that what you're referring to, or or yeah? So so
1: so just just like right now, when you you know, if a company files taxes, you can get audited by the government or a third party entity. Mm-hmm. What some have proposed is that before you put a really critical AI system into practice, that you have a technical auditor who's looking at it, looking for boundary cases, looking for bias in data sets, which is a big problem. Now, look, it's going it's, it's to be a while before we get there. But the fact that these ideas are being talked about and taken seriously is encouraging. To
0: me. That is encouraging. I've, I've done a little bit of work with Element AI, and they've yeah. been collaborating with the UN Office for the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and yeah. Mozilla Foundation, and, and it's interesting to see there, there there is a network of groups, private sector uh, foundations that are starting to look at this. So I, I find that very, uh, you know, in these dark times, or something positive to look at. You know, maybe yeah. my, my last question for you, uh, Sheldon, because I I know your your son is or your child is going to come through that door any <laughs> time now, and we're, <laughs> almost, we're almost at twenty minutes. If we put the the technical the AI thing to the side, there's another element of this, and mm. one is about digital literacy. It's about okay. it's about yes, we can use AI to deal with fake information and it's being flooded and and different actors engage. But what do you, what is your view on the role of citizens in actually being a little more critical online, not believing everything they see? Do you think, that is that also part of the, of a wider solution than like a public education campaign to actually teach people digital literacy skills?
1: I, I think absolutely, right? Because here's the thing, you can give people all the tools in the world, but if they, if they want to believe a certain narrative, they'll believe it, right? Mm-hmm. I think of my thought, like, Older than, like obviously a wonderful man, deeply spiritual, but these conspiracy theories that he comes up with, like he read, and hopefully does he doesn't watch this podcast, but he read that the whole coronavirus was China stealing it from the US as a biological weapon, but it actually came out and like, they didn't have the, the, the you know, the anecdote for it. And I remember thinking like, dad, like, where did you read this? And why are you inclined to believe this? Right? Yeah. And it's almost like I had to undergo a bit of digital literacy education for him, which maybe all children feel at some point with their parents. My son will probably feel like that with me in, in your 20 years <laughs> is, right? So yes, I think, I think that's a point well taken, right? It's one thing to give people all the tools in the world. But to get them to use the tools and to bring a conscientious approach to appropriating information is incredibly important. And I think like your organization, you know, the work we do at Darwin, and universities like that's partly why i gave the talk it was mm-hmm. for the young students in in the audience who you know are born in the digital world they need to know now this is being happening this is happening like be careful of what you read and how
0: you read. sheldon i want to thank you so much for for joining us taking time out of your busy schedule and i hope we can uh, have you on again we're going to be doing a lot of these interviews because we can't yeah. be in a physical space so so hopefully we can have your voice and, and, and get your knowledge and um, hear from you in the future.
1: No, that's wonderful. One last thing, Cove, just have a moment. Um, our company open sourced in conjunction with the University of Waterloo an open source neural network, which we called COVIDNet. And it's a neural network that can analyze chest x-rays and with pretty good statistical certainty, diagnose corona. Um, So I'd I'd encourage people to just go to our website, check it out. We've open sourced it to the research community because we don't want to benefit commercially from this. We want to give healthcare professionals a tool to combat the pandemic. So just a note to your your listeners and viewers out there, uh, do check that out because it is an important initiative that we're trying to get started.